Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 37. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. I'm almost confused right now. This is the first episode we've done in a while where we aren't doing an animation into live action comparison or a Marvel film. Right, and we're finally doing a Disney sports movie and we're in the thick of hockey season right now and we're opting not to do Miracle. That's a little different. Miracle's something where, spoiler, you hold it for the Olympics, specifically the Winter Olympics. All right, I'll give you that one. This is still appropriate for this week, though. Yes, we do have the Kentucky Derby coming up this week. So, naturally, of course, we're going to talk about Secretariat. I have to say, when they announced that they were doing a Secretariat movie years ago, and specifically when they announced that Disney had gotten it, I was so excited. That's because Sean is a degenerate gambler. Yes, I am. (laughs) Yes, I am. As my godfather who has since passed away, would say, I'll bet on two cockroaches walking across the floor. That's a true story. But I was really excited when they announced this because, um, believe it or not, um, thoroughbred horse racing is something that is very significant for me because it was something that was significant to my family. Before you pass judgment, it's not (laughs) like my parents were going to the track hoping to send me to college one day. No. No. This was, you know, a matter of we knew owners, we knew trainers, we knew jockeys. So we had your more than average interest in thoroughbred horse racing. And in a way, for me, and I'm not trying to romanticize it, um, but... There is kind of something about that tradition that's still upheld to this day. And when they said that they were going to do this film, I thought it was a perfect match for Disney because we know that when they when they do these sports movies, they love to tell the underdog story. Mm-hmm. And I felt that this was a story that needed to be told. See... I mean, it's different for me. I definitely enjoy going to the track. It's always a lot of fun. Um, But it wasn't something that was as ingrained in my childhood as it was for you. Um, Like, you're no joke. You guys really know what you're doing when you go to the track. Um, You know, the first time, I remember the first time I went with you and, you know, you showed me the book and you explained everything. And it, it was just such an overwhelming amount of information when you go and you actually do bet on a horse. Um, but it just comes very naturally to you because you've been doing it for so long. Um, so with that said, I mean, it's not that I wasn't interested in the movie, but I wasn't really looking at it as an underdog tale because you know what happens. Yes, but you know what happens at the end of Miracle, and it doesn't make the story any less impressive. That's true. Speaking of the story, I kind of just want to launch into it. Yeah, because let's do it. I have a lot to say about this movie. 
All right. You have so, a lot to say about a lot of things. Yes. Um, the movie starts in Denver in 1969. Penny Chenery receives a phone call that her mother has passed away. Uh, she goes home for the funeral, and we find out that her father is sick, and he's very confused. They never come out and say that he's got Alzheimer's or dementia, but they sort of lead you to believe that that's what's going on. And we also find out that his business, Meadow Stables, which is located in Virginia, is losing money. Uh, Meadow Stables being, of course, his family business, and they are in the business of breeding um, racehorses, thoroughbreds. Um, Penny fires the stables trainer upon learning of a dishonest sale and is recommended Lucian Lauren as his replacement. Lauren's looking to retire, but she's looking to pull him out of his so-called retirement. Previously, Penny's father had made a deal with Ogden Phipps that if Phipps bred his best stallion, Bold Ruler, with their best mares, something royal and hasty Matilda, that a coin flip would decide who received which foal. For, you know, in other words, the foal being the child of the, the two baby horses. Horse. Exactly right. Um, so Hasty Matilda is younger, but something royal, who is much older, had a great history of producing horses with stamina. So Ogden wins the flip and picks Hasty Matilda's foal, uh, which is fine with Penny because she wanted the foal of something royal the entire time. Lucian eventually accepts Penny's offer and trains Secretariat. After a poor first race, they fire their young jockey and replace him with the more experienced Ronnie Turcott. After winning Horse of the Year, Penny's father suffers a stroke and passes away, and she learns that the tax on his estate is $6 million. Her brother Hollis wants Penny to sell Secretariat to pay for this tax. However, Penny decides that she could syndicate the horse's breeding rights and sells 32 shares in excess of $6 million. Uh, Ogden offers her $7 million for Secretariat, but Penny believes that the horse can win the Triple Crown and be worth much more. Secretariat runs in the Wood Memorial, which is held uh, over at Aqueduct, against his rival Sham, and he has a very poor showing. We find out that an abscess in Secretariat's mouth has been causing him pain, which, in a chain reaction sort of way, is also keeping him from racing at his full potential. Secretariat wins the Kentucky Derby. He then goes on to win the Preakness, and they move on to the Belmont Stakes. Sham's owner, Frank Poncho Martin, instructs his jockey, to stay with Secretariat the entire race, push him to the front, and tire him out in an attempt to win. Well, Secretariat runs the fastest Belmont Stakes in history, wins by 31 lengths, while Sham tires out and finishes dead last. To this day, people will tell you that Secretariat is probably the greatest thoroughbred racing horse of all time. And to be honest with you, if you don't follow horse racing, it's it's impressive enough that this horse ran the fastest Belmont Stakes in history. They've run the Belmont Stakes for over 120-something years. Um, the fact that, actually, now, now it's almost 150, actually. Wow. Um, the fact that he not only did that, but 
to win by 31 lengths. For those of you who don't understand what that means, they're talking about a horse's length. Imagine taking 31 horses from nose to tail and going one after another after another. That's how far back the second place finisher was to Secretariat when he won the Belmont Stakes. No one's been able to come close. That's a staggering, staggering statistic. Absolutely staggering. When when American Pharaoh won his uh, Triple Crown... Um, back in 2015, they did a side-by-side to see who ran it faster because, believe it or not, um, these horse races, when they are retired and they go out to stud, they can foal hundreds and hundreds of horses. I think, yeah, they said Secretary had about 600 Over, sires. I think it was 664. Wow. I think. In American Pharaoh's bloodline is Secretariat. Yes. And he's like somehow like a great, 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 great grandfather, you know, sort of relationship. So they put the two of them side by side and Secretariat still beat American Pharaoh. That was cool. I remember when they did that and they they did the side by side video. And they did the same thing with Justify when Justify Mm. won. Because similarly, Justify is also in that... um, in that Secretariat bloodline. Right. So this horse is, you know, even though the, unfortunately the horse passed away almost 30 years ago, he continues to be relevant. And I think that's why Disney wanted to tell this story, to talk about the script. I do like the fact that they did tell this story, but, you know, sometimes when they do these films, specifically with sports movies, I've noticed, you have gone out of your way to make a film because you felt that the story as it stood on its own was impressive enough. And this very much was. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, and I mean, maybe you can talk to this point a little bit, seeing as this is your industry. It sometimes bothers me, and I know it bothered a lot of critics in regards to this particular film, um, where you take a story that was true and you fabricate certain things for the sake of creating drama. Mm -hmm. For example, um, Sham's owner, Poncho, Mm -hmm. he wasn't at all the way he was portrayed in this movie. They made him such an over-the-top villain, for a lack of a better term, because there was no other villain in this movie. And that's not really how it was. So I just, if I have any complaint about this movie, or about the script, I should say, out of the shoot... It's that you thought this was special enough. You didn't have to alter it. That's sort of my opinion on it. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I've been looking forward to discussing with you the most because you know more of the history behind this. And I'm completely looking at this from a film standpoint. Um, And it's interesting that you raise that point about how much drama do they need to add to create an interesting story when as you said the story is interesting enough in and of itself especially not just with secretariat and winning the triple winning the triple crown but you know penny chenery's life was pretty sad you know she got hit with the death of her mother and her father not too long after um you know and back and forth between colorado and virginia i mean i imagine that must have been a really 
difficult thing for her to do, especially while the kids were growing up. And she had four children. Right. And they do address that in the film where um, her one daughter is in a school play and her son has to hold the telephone up from a payphone so that she can hear her daughter sing in her performance while she's it was um, right after Secretariat ran at the Wood Memorial. Mm -hmm. So she's in Queens listening to her daughter sing in Denver through a payphone. So, yes, they they certainly do put a spotlight on the fact that Penny made incredible sacrifices to make this work and that this meant so much more to her than just money. This stable, as it's portrayed in the film, at least, was going under. This was more about her holding on to that special relationship she had with her parents, more specifically her father, but definitely both of her parents, and she wanted something more. She wanted to carry that torch for them. Well, I think it's a little bit of that, and I think to circle back and answer your question, I also think that, you know, she's a product of your time. Um, Do I think that they had to create a villain for the sake of telling the story not necessarily but I think you needed someone to represent that at the time this was unheard of for a female to do and you know you didn't really have the press naysaying her because you did have the two journal uh the journalist characters right um and one of them was actually championing her so I think you needed it to come from somewhere other than just her husband. And, you know, here's here's my issue with it. Um, you know, I'm glad that they really did stick to the roots. And I think they, they really did keep everything, for the most part, historically accurate. But it's really interesting that you brought up the drama thing. Because I feel like the way that they set some of the drama up completely threw off the pacing of this film um you know like i mentioned before she loses both of her parents in a short period of time her father who she she seemed to be closer to um before he passes it's like you that's the interesting thing you know they say they never actually come out and say that it's alzheimer's or that it is dementia but they definitely allude to it. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. Every time they try to set up drama, it plateaus. It never, ever peaks. From her trying to save the farm, you knew why she had to do it for financial reasons, but she never comes out and says, I, I have to I have to do this for my father. I have to do this for my parents. She just like goes into autopilot and gets the job done. Um her husband kind of takes all these digs like we need you home the kids need you but he never gives her an actual ultimatum of you have to make a choice and I mean I'm happy that he never stopped her from pursuing what she wanted but they set up all of these conflicts and I feel like they never deliver on them or when there's a resolution like everything kind of like builds and then just blows over it never actually I guess to your point, the drama here is almost pointless. Right. I mean, the the juice of the story is how dominating 
this horse was. You know, I remember after we saw Bohemian Rhapsody, I said the same thing. A lot of that film was historically inaccurate, which is why it shouldn't have been nominated for Best Picture. Um, and I, I said it then. If you thought the story was good enough to, fa- to, to make a film, tell the story. Don't tell your version of history. I'm glad you brought up that example, though, because here's the thing. We're not making a documentary here. It's a film. You need a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you need conflict. And I agree with you. I think Bohemian Rhapsody was a poor choice because it's such recent history. So to take so many liberties when you kind of have all the facts in the back of your mind and you know how it happened, um, it's hard to sit there and watch that and believe it. Um, I think this is different because we're a little bit farther removed for it from it. So where they did take liberties, I think that they... I, I don't know. I, I I go back and forth because you needed something else for this story. You definitely needed something else, but I just feel like they didn't go about it in the right way. Right. I, I guess the big thing, too, when comparing the two films that we just discussed, is that I think a lot of people, more people than not, know a lot about Freddie Mercury's life. You don't necessarily know quite as much about Secretariat or Penny Chenery. So I suppose, and Sham, Sham was a rival to Secretariat, mm-hmm. but I guess because the animals don't speak to each other, they had to personify Sham somehow, and that's why they went to Poncho. I just feel, it sounds stupid, but it's like, you know, Poncho's grandchildren watched this film. That's not how Grandpa really was. <laughs> You know, I just, I, I just take issue sometimes with people villainizing a real person who didn't conduct themselves that way, just to make a story more interesting. Yeah, no, I, I see your point, but I think especially because you know they had those two scenes with the pref- the press conferences where he's totally being this macho guy and putting her down, and he even comes out and says that she's a housewife and right. He doesn't mean that in a complimentary way at all. It's totally a put down and it's like, there's no place for you here. And she retaliates against him in front of the press. Um, That part, I think, was completely fabricated for the story. But I'm sure there was some truth to it that she didn't have an easy time. You know, she was she was playing with the big boys in a man's world. I agree with you. And I think that. Her story certainly is intriguing. And I think the thing is her story parallels her horse's story so well. And that's what makes their relationship special. That's what makes her endearing. And I think that's that's what makes this a story that needs to be told. I don't think it was as misogynistic in reality as the film portrayed it to be. But again you're trying to create more drama and sort of add fuel to the fire because if it's, well, a handful of people don't think you should be here, but the rest of us like you, you're right. It's right. not interesting enough. I think the husband was misogynistic. Let me tell you something. I, I know I'm jumping the gun here because we haven't gotten into the characters yet. I can't stand him. 
he no. is so unsupportive. Mm-hmm. And again, now here I am saying you shouldn't twist history. And this might have been the sweetest <laughs> man on earth. And he might have supported her from start to finish until the day she passed away, because unfortunately she did die a couple of years ago. Um, and I might be sitting here throwing my hands in the air going, I can't stand you. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a hypocrite. But, um, you know, yeah, he's just I, I understand his point of view in that he needs her to be. A, well, here's the thing. He says he needs her to be around. He can for the do children. a load of laundry. He could. They're, they're teenagers. It's yeah, not like they're six the years old. Thing. And the two the two girls are like in high school. Right. They're going to Chile on a school trip. Yeah. If you can go to Chile, you can you can help out around the house. I don't know if this is what they were going for per se, but I almost got the feeling that maybe he didn't like the fact that he was not the breadwinner for a time. Possibly because he was a lawyer, correct? And I want to say that she was as well. I, I think she had some sort of law background. Yeah, I mean, they they allude to it. She does say that after college, she gave up her career to start the family. And the way that she's just able to go and get information, I have to assume there's some kind of law degree because she knew she knew the rules beyond growing up on a farm that raised thoroughbred horses. Yeah, she knew the ins and outs. Yeah, she got to the heart of the problem right away, like when she immediately fired the trainer. Like, she knew exactly what he was doing. Right, exactly. Um, And we mentioned that the trainer had been fired. Basically, what happened was these trainers, they're not necessarily contracted to work with one stable per se, at least not all of them. Some of them train for many stables. Mm -hmm. And basically what was happening was this trainer was taking advantage of the fact that the people that owned this stable, her parents, were old and her father was confused he was he was a part of a sale where they were going to sell one of their horses off to another stable for half of what the horse was worth and then turn and flip that horse to another stable for what the horse was actually worth and he was taking a cut of it and actually she had said it was her mother that had figured that one out yes so And then he was trying to pull one over on the father. So what's interesting about that is you never see mom in the movie because she passes away at the very beginning. And that's how we get introduced to her being back in Virginia at the stable. That happens within about the first three minutes of screen time. She gets the phone call and they're they're back for the funeral. No pun intended. This movie is is the movies off to the races. I mean, from the minute it starts, like it doesn't. It doesn't build up anything slowly. You, you you enter the film and you're immediately off and running. Um, but what I like about this is that even though you don't see mom and you only see dad, you can see how a character who you've n- you're never going to be introduced to, you're never going to see them, you're never going to hear them speak, but you can see the influence on Penny. Yeah, she was definitely a take-no-crap, tough cookie. And that little throwaway line of, your mother figured this out, and you know she capitalizes on the opportunity to not only call him out on it, but also to fire him. She finished her mother's job for her. She, she, again, it's that, it's that carrying the torch in the family name. But I love that that little line, that almost it almost doesn't mean that much, 
carries so much weight if you really look at Penny as a character. See, that's interesting because, you know, I had said it before, I feel like they set up a lot of drama and then they don't do anything with it. Like it never comes to a head. And that was one of the things that I kind of took issue with was that aside from, you know, obviously you want to do right by your parents and obviously she wants to save the farm, but like, you know, it was almost like she was avenging them in a way and I couldn't figure out why other than she wanted to do the right thing. And, right. you know, eventually you come to find out she is doing it for herself because she's raised a family, the kids are older, and now she wants to do something for her. Right. Um, and to your point, you said it's almost like she's trying to avenge them because in this film the way that the story was written for the sake of making the movie was that this stable was bankrupt. The reality is that this stable was not financially hurting the way that they made it seem. This stable had had, um, I think it was a Kentucky Derby winner within two or three years prior to Secretariat winning. And there's so much money in that because it's not just the winnings from that one race. But it's the money you make selling off the stud fees, mm-hmm. which was which is really the, that within itself was the drama behind the movie. I didn't. I don't think you necessarily needed all the other stuff, but I suppose unless you're really into horse racing or finances, you as a casual moviegoer, you really don't care about the stud fee and what the what the ramifications are if your horse doesn't win. You know, I kind I kind of think that could have been the whole story was the financial problems and then her playing in the boys club. You didn't necessarily need all the conflict with the family. Um but with that said, you know, to have a film where the drama is carried by a lot of dialogue about finances, you know, false it, it's not like you're watching Wall Street. Right. Right. Yeah, I get that. Um, so, obviously, they found a way to work it in. And it's not that it's bad. And if you if you didn't care to really delve into it that much, it probably didn't bother you. But having an above average knowledge of the true story, and for somebody like me that wants to delve in more, when I see things like that, it kind of does stand out as, ah, I don't want to say you cheapened it, but there's so much else going on where I felt like you didn't have to, you didn't have to rewrite history to make it better. Right. You, you're choosing to tell history because you think it's significant enough as it stands. Mm. You don't have to rewrite it the way you wish it had gone. But I, but that's, but it's, it's that double-edged sword. I get where I'm coming from, but I also see your end of it from your standpoint because you're looking at it not just from the casual moviegoer standpoint, but also from a production side. I mean, this is what you do. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what I'm looking for is does the story work? And I I think it's weird because your complaint is that they're making up drama and I don't think they took it far enough. Interesting. Hmm. Because it just, that's what I'm saying. There's conflict, but there was enough conflict that was true to life. What they built on, it just plateaus. It never, the only thing where it really peaks is where she actually misses the daughter's recital. 
yeah. because she clearly feels bad and she clearly had to make a choice. But that's the other thing. The conflict is with her husband, not the daughter. The daughter's kind of a free spirit. She supports that her mother wants to do this. But that would have been a more interesting conflict is if she was mad at her mother for missing out on these major life moments and then when she realizes what her mother's done when they go to the um the, the it is a ball at the end the belmont right? ball yes i i was afraid i was like still stuck in fairy tale land by calling it a ball no, but it was a the ball. Belmont ball you um, got that right yeah and then maybe when she got there and saw everything that her mother had achieved rather than just seeing it on television and in the news and puts it all together she's proud of her like that would have been a more interesting story and more interesting drama as far as a personal relationship goes. And I also think that in terms of, for a lack of a better term, hurting somebody's character, meaning somebody like a real human being, that probably doesn't hurt her family's image as much as they hurt Poncho's image. Right. By making that the focal point. Right. That's so, a good point. you know, that's. That's kind of what stands out to me. And and other than that, it's like I um I like the script for this movie. I do like the characters. We will delve into them in just a just a moment. But I will say that this movie falls victim to a crime that a lot of sports movies, sports movies in particular, and God knows I watch plenty of them. Um it falls victim to the um, we're here to show you how magical this was. So we're going to do a lot of not just rah-rah, but these inspirational and you can do it. And this is our time and it's us against the world and we're going to show them all. Once or twice, okay. It does happen a lot in this movie. And whether I want to admit it or not, it does come off as sort of cheesy, and I think it cheapens what is otherwise a very significant moment in professional sports, and I think a very special moment for Penny Chenery. I completely agree with you. It got a little kumbaya. Yeah, it got very kumbaya at times. Um, But, I mean, other than that, I, I don't have too much else to say on the script. I don't know if you have anything else you want to tack on there before we really talk about these characters a little bit more. Uh, not on the script, but before we go to character, I have to say this is one of the most beautifully shot films yes. Disney has in their canon. Yes. It's stunning. I it is love absolutely it. stunning. The color... The, you know, they they did. And to your point to what you just said with, you know, it getting a little cheesy, they walked a fine line between a good use of the slow motion, slow motion horse running, slow motion cheering, and then they got out of it. It wasn't too much. It wasn't too over the top because this is a horse racing movie. You can't slow it down that much. No, um, because if you slow it down, it takes away from the natural drama that happens in any horse race. Like a horse galloping is beautiful, but like when it's out in the field, there's a time and a place for it. And when it's about to break through the finish line, don't, you know, don't slow down those cameras. Yeah, there's Black Beauty and there's yeah. Secretary. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, 
but you're right, and, and that was that was a big note that I had as well. Is that the cinematography? It's it's such an achievement here, and um, the the fact that they're able to really put you in the middle of that race mm-hmm. in in not in all of them. They put you right in the middle of something that's fast paced. But what's amazing is it's not only quick, it's endurance for the animal, it's endurance for the jockey, it's strategy, it's everything. It's everything at once. And they do a phenomenal job of capturing all of it. Yeah, they really were able to make you feel it. Um, and not just with the racing, though. It, this is, for all intents and purposes, a period piece. You know, even the home in Colorado, they got that, like, mid-century modern look down. Um, the clothes I really loved. Yeah, I had that noted, too. I love the sets and I love the costumes. Yeah, no, I it's love... it's beautiful. And And similar with the costumes and the sets... It's just enough without it looking like a Halloween costume. Yes. You know, sometimes you do these period pieces where it's like, wow, that's flamboyant. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that's a lot of plaid. Nobody wore that much. But <laughs> but they, they tone it down here. Um, while we're talking about a set, uh, before we do move on to these characters, because we are going to get to them, I feel like that's where we're going to spend the most time. Because they're people. Right. Um, the only sets I didn't like were the tracks. And that's only because I have gone to Saratoga. God knows I have gone to Belmont Park. Mm-hmm. I understand it's a film. I know you're using sets. Not everything is filmed on location. But it's not like you're going off to Azerbaijan. You're go- you're going to you go- you're going to Queens, you're going to upstate New York. It's not that far to travel actually well yeah you'd go to queens you could knock out aqueduct belmont and saratoga because they're all within three and a half hours of each other and belmont and aqueduct are within 25 minutes of each other you can't and here's why okay because racing season here is over the summer when the weather is nice and you want to shoot and you can shoot if you're talking about the fall it's rainy they're not going to bring a production to new york because of the weather but Saratoga races the third week of July through Labor Day. You could have shot uh, at Aqueduct in Belmont while they were up in Saratoga. You could have shot the Saratoga scenes, because it's only one, mind you. You could have shot the Saratoga scene in mid-June, even early July, and gotten away with it. If you're not going to shoot on, on site, you need to at least use some... Listen, they use CGI for everything. You have to at least get certain elements right. All of these tracks look like they're in the middle of nowhere. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, it's the case in Saratoga. It, you know That track is in the middle of a neighborhood. I've not been to Churchill Downs. I can't speak to it. But what I can tell you is that uh, Aqueduct is off of the Belt Parkway. And Belmont Park is off of Hempstead Turnpike. And they have those big buildings behind it. They've been there since before Secretariat even ran those races. Nowhere do they appear in the film. Yeah, you did lose the cityscape because you can't see it. Right. You can. Yeah, and to your point, Churchill Downs, Kentucky, the weather's a little bit more favorable for more of the year. You probably could have gotten away with doing that on location. Right. Um, So if I have prob... Those are the the sets I have issue with. Everything else I thought was wonderful. I love the stables. I love... 
I love that little diner they keep going into. Yeah, it reminded too. me of the Bulldog Cafe from the Rocketeer. It was sort of like that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, it totally does. Um, and there was just there was a bit of comedy to that too because you have these people that, for all intents and purposes do have quite a bit of money because the jockeys do make money too. Um, but it's the trainers, it's the owners, and they're hanging out in this dank, smoky, little, like, diner car. I, I love the juxtaposition. I do too. And it, it reminded me of Saratoga. It reminded me of that, like, small community feel. Yes. Because we went to Saratoga last year. That was the first time you had been up there. Mm-hmm. So when we when you get the Saras uh, the Saratoga scene in this film, you know it's Saratoga because of that white and red. Yes. But otherwise, I kind of miss that upstate New York because even with Saratoga, it's a neighborhood, but it's it's very lush. It's very green. There is a lot of trees. This looked like it was slapped in the middle of a field. I would imagine. Yeah that they shot and admittedly I haven't looked so shame on me but I would imagine that they probably shot at Los Alamitos just because of its proximity to the Disney Studios or Santa Anita Santa Anita maybe but I think Santa Anita is so specific to Southern California it stands out similar to a Churchill Downs or or a Saratoga I guess that's kind of my point if you're gonna if you, if it's going to take place there, let it take place there. Right. But otherwise, yeah, I I really do enjoy the look of this movie from the cinematography down. Um to finally get into the characters, Penny Chenery, I mean, we've talked about her now for, for quite some time. We've talked about how fantastic she is, but Diane Lane was brilliant in this movie. I loved her in this, um, especially from that opening voiceover. I mean, to me, she's always going to be Jack's mother from the movie Jack with Robin Williams. Yes. Uh, that's what I probably first knew her for. Um, but the movie opens with a voiceover. And I was like, oh, man, thank God this is not like the one in Perfect Storm. When Perfect Storm ends, she's got that horrible Boston accent. And like I, I was almost waiting for it in this. <laughs> I don't know why. It, it just scarred me. But yeah, oh God, everybody's accent, including Mark Wahlberg, who is from Boston, is awful in Perfect Storm. But anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, I think she's so believable. And um, I like... Um, I like the way she was just really expressive in this movie. Like she was able to convey a lot with just a small look and it was never over the top. It was never overdone. Um, And her delivery was just always very calm. And I I have to imagine, you know, in the real life situation, Penny Chenry really was under a lot of stress. And I like how, you know, Diane Lane portrayed her as like this grace under pressure. Not just grace under pressure, but very powerful and totally immersed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when she starts rambling on with, but this one with the stamina and this and this, like she starts to get very excited. And what stands out to me in any of these scenes where her acting really shines, it's all in the eyes. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Diane Lane is sort of known for having those kind of big doe eyes to begin with. But she knows how to use them. Mm-hmm. And she used them well in this movie. 
as you said, very, very expressive. And I don't know of anybody else that could have played this as well as she did. I really believe... I, I go so far as to say that I think this entire cast was perfect. Especially... I've been waiting for this one. John Malkovich. John Malkovich is everything I never knew that I needed in a Disney film. Like, can we put him in a pirate sequel, please? Or like, what, what, I, I don't know, Toy Story, throw him in, please. He's so flamboyant, and it's perfect. I mean, he was as true to real life as you could be. But that's John Malkovich. You know, he's just an extraordinary talent. Yeah. And the fact that they pegged him to play Lucian was absolutely spot on. He wears those ridiculous outfits, but he pulls them off. Like, like he, he doesn't, but he does. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you yeah. couldn't put those outfits on anybody else and have them t- have it taken seriously. But there's just something about John Malkovich where with him, it works. Yeah. And... I love how he comes in and out of English and French Canadian. All the time, yeah. I love how worked up he gets. He almost seems like the manic drunk, even though he's not drinking. Yeah, like it's so weird he didn't have like that extra thing or like extra subplot, but he didn't need it at all. And I think what I love the most was that his humor came from you know he's he's mean like a lot of the times he's out and out mean but people think he's just being funny yeah and it is funny well it's just it's just sarcasm it's just straight sarcasm and the movie doesn't need to be a comedy but you're right his presence and just the way that he emotes things and the way that he expresses himself it's funny enough where in it's where it's it's funny without being a joke. Right. And I think that he pulled it off really well. I said it to you before. Um, her husband is such a wet mop. But we don't really ever find out why. I'm just sort of taking a stab at why I think he was. But, I mean, he shows up at the end with the kids at Belmont. And it's like, okay, Good, you're here. You should have been here the whole time, guy. He was a total bandwagon jumper and didn't start supporting her until secretary. It was almost a lock. Yeah. Um, you know who really surprised me in this movie? Not that he surprised me because I do think he's a fine actor, but Kevin Connolly. I'm always happy to see him show up in a movie. You know what I liked about him? He plays this reporter in the film, but... We talked about how Poncho and Penny personify their horses. Kevin Connolly personifies the everyday man mm. in this movie. He he personifies um, every person that had a vested interest and was rooting for this horse, from a passionate horse racing fan down to somebody that wouldn't be caught dead at the track, but wants to drink the mint julep and wear the big hat on Derby Day. It, as soon as this horse, as soon as you knew this horse was something special, 
so many people wanted to be involved. Mm-hmm. And I, I was not around to see it, but I can tell you from having watched how many failed Triple Crown attempts and then finally seeing how so many people rallied around American Pharaoh. Um, and, and that's sort of the benefit of having social media now is there are so many people I saw check in on Facebook were there the day of the race posting pictures. It's like you've, you you didn't even know where Belmont Park was last week, but (laughs) there you are because people do find these symbols. They rally around them. And I thought that that was really the purpose of having this character in this film, which is interesting because they made him a journalist. So you wouldn't think that he would represent the people. Um, I mean, I guess you had to give him a reason to get close to Penny Chenery. Uh, And I think it worked well because she kind of saw right through him that he wasn't a sleazy journalist trying to get like the inside scoop. He was actually just trying to tell Secretariat's story. Right. And he also has a Naira New York Racing Association connection. He, you, I don't think he does anymore, but he used to own a piece of Ciro's up in Saratoga, mm. which is the bar and restaurant right next to the track. Didn't all the entourage guys go in on it? I think so. I thought they all had something. Maybe not Ciro's, maybe it was something else, but I thought they all had something together. I think a couple of the guys from that cast along with Kevin Connolly, had a piece of Ciro's. But Ciro's, you used to go there, and that's where they do the handicapping every morning, and they Mm. have the guys, the analysts on TV, and do the show from there. Um, So that's always a big gathering spot. The funny thing is, when I saw this movie, you knew who Kevin Connolly was because you knew him as E from Entourage. I have since uh, watched Entourage, but I hadn't seen it up to this point. I knew him as that guy I sell raffle tickets to at Nassau Coliseum. Yeah, I was I was shocked to find that out. I was like, wait, you know E? So I used to do game operations for the New York Islanders, and I used to sell 50-50 raffle tickets on the concourse to raise money for the New York Islanders Children's Foundation. And Kevin Connolly used to come to Islander games, I don't want to say all the time, because he was shooting Entourage at the time and he was out in L.A., but it was sort of my understanding that when they were on break from the show, he'd come home. He's a tremendous Islanders fan. He's a huge Islanders fan. He's also, he's just like, very social. I was doing an event uh, with the radio station we used to work with and he was there and he was just like the nicest guy. He's approachable and he's really cool. I got a private message from him once on Twitter. Really? I had tweeted something to him about the Islanders. This was like six years ago. And then I get this DM in my inbox from Kevin Connolly and he goes... You're a Yankee Dolphin Islanders fan? Me too. Weird combo, right? And I never heard from him again. (laughs) Well, Kevin Conley, if you're listening. (laughs) And you want to come on and talk about your role in this film and bring me over to Ciro's, I'm I'm more than happy to do it. I'll even sell you some raffle tickets for old time's sake. Um, But, um, yeah, I I do... um, uh, We talked before about um, about Poncho and, and... you know, how he was not historically accurate. But otherwise, 
the Secretariat, he's a character. Obviously, he's a character in the film. It's it's sort of his biopic. But what it, there were two things that impressed me about what they did here. First off, they found a horse that looked very, very similar to Secretariat. Secretariat was such a unique-looking horse, not just because of that, they called him Big Red. He sort of had like that, kind of like that auburn hair. Right, right. But he had a stripe down his nose that came to a point at his forehead that almost looked like an arrow. And I'm sure that that's probably um, partially the magic of movie makeup was putting that on him. For sure. But that horse was a very large animal. Larger than your average racehorse. And they found a horse that maybe not quite as big, but certainly fits the bill just enough where I believe it. And I thought that in terms of an animal actor, I thought that that was very good casting. And I also liked that right before, I think it was the Kentucky Derby, Sham and Secretariat, through their blinders, turn at each other in the starting gate and look at each other, right as the jockeys are looking at each other as well. And again, it was that that mirror image, that personification. And I thought that that visual was very strong. But I do... I do like what they did here in terms of the cast from the animal actors up to the human element. I also really like that scene where uh, it's right before Belmont where Diane Lane goes to talk to him and she says, I feel like I already won. Go go run your race now. It's, it's a really sweet moment. Right. And um, we didn't talk about Ronnie Turcott. Um, Ronnie Turcott is the jockey that, that raced Secretariat and won those Triple Crowns and... I've met Ronnie Turcott before, um, and he is as genuine a person in real life as he comes across in this film. And to this day, he's still a fixture in horse racing, um, even though he unfortunately um, was forced into retirement only about five years after uh, the events of this film. Um where a horse that he was riding tripped and he was thrown and he shattered his spine and he is paralyzed and he is in a wheelchair, but he has taken his life to, and he's dedicated it to raising money for disabled jockeys because this is an occupational hazard. Yeah. Um, and he has become a very vocal champion um, for those jockeys that have... Um, experience these horrific injuries um but i thought that the actor that played him i thought he looked like him thought he sounded like him um if you've ever heard ronnie turcott speak he's canadian but he sort of has almost like a southern accent it, it's kind of nondescript it's very unique mm. and i i felt that the the actor who played him who's also a jockey in real life um i thought that he was cast well, and I thought that he sort of carried that persona very well. Because Ronnie Turcott, he was a fighter, and he's still a fighter. And I'm really glad that he was such a focal point of this film, because there was the opportunity for him to 
be overlooked. And for this movie to be about Penny and about the horse and about Lucian. But I really love the fact that Ronnie Turcotte really does get his due in this film. Yeah, and I'm glad they didn't focus too much on, you know, prior to him racing Secretariat, he had pushed the horse too far and and it killed the horse. And I'm glad that they, you know, that they didn't leave that out of the story, but I'm glad it wasn't the focal point. Right, because it's just another thing that is a vehicle for showing how motivated he is to win. Mm. And I got to say, I love Eddie. Yeah, that's what I, the supporting cast, Eddie and um, the secretary, the one that named... Uh, Miss Ham. Yes, she named Secretariat. Um, yeah, I, I like that they gave them probably bigger roles and more involvement than they actually had in real life. Yes, and uh, Penny, the real Penny, Chenery, does get um, a cameo in the film. She is a part of... A, she's a spectator, uh, during the Triple Crown race. And uh, as I had mentioned uh, a little while ago, she has unfortunately since passed away. Um, at the time of this recording, I believe it's been two years. I think she died in 2017. Um, but I'm glad that she was not only recognized and given a cameo in the film, but that she was able to live long enough to see her story get made. Yes. Exactly. And she gets a fair amount of screen time in that scene because they have her seated right behind the family. Yeah. So she's she's in a couple of shots. It's not just like one money shot. Yeah. Um, so unless you have anything else you want to add about the characters or the plot, um, I think now is a good time to kind of give our final say on what we think. I'm going to let you go first. Um, definitely a feel good movie. Um, but I think that's kind of as far as it goes for me. because, And that's why, you know, I had said it in the beginning. If it was anything else, this movie would totally lose me as far as setting up the drama and not delivering on it. But that's not why I'm watching this. I'm not watching it for conflict. It's a biopic for all intents and purposes. So, you know, it's a feel-good story. And, and that's what I want to watch it for is when you want to, sit down and see something uplifting as far as rewatchability I mean sure I enjoyed it you know I had only seen it the once in theaters up until we recorded this episode um so I enjoyed watching it again but is it going to be my first pick when I sit down to watch a movie no probably not my favorite thing about it is probably John Malkovich okay um of all of the Disney sports films the ones that are the true to life you know the telling the true story based on a true story this one is not my favorite um but it is one that for me personally is high on the list um in spite of the fact that there are parts of the script and parts of the plot that i think sort of cheapen um the all around story and the all around feel and the real drama that existed um they did get a lot of things right. As I mentioned, most of the sets, definitely the costumes, the cast, um, the music in it is uplifting. It's very good. It's a little cheesy, but it's good. Um, there were little things that stood out to me. Uh, for example, um, the little details, like the jockeys are wearing multiple layers of goggles, mm -hmm. which is something that they really do. 
because when you're towards the back of the pack and you have mud and dirt kicked up in your face, they just rip, they just pull the goggles down Mm -hmm. because otherwise they can't see. And they'll have three or four different pairs of goggles that they'll go through over the course of a race. And little things like that, that it's like, you know what? Disney knows to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. And let me just say, the visual towards the end of this film, when Secretariat wins the Triple Crown by 31 astonishing lengths, Ronnie Turcott has not a speck of dirt on him because they never sat at the back of the pack, which was uncharacteristic of the horse, mind you. The horse always started at the back and then closed strong. Mm-hmm. But I felt, that the visual of him squeaky clean was as powerful as anything else in this movie. And I just love that shot of him coming across the top of the stretch at Belmont on the final turn, heading towards the finish line. Totally clean. There's something about that, that you mentioned it before. You know how the movie's going to end. I'm not above admitting that I actually got choked up when he turned the fu- when he when he came across the top of the stretch the first time I saw this movie. No, it's true. It it's a nice moment because it also shows that it shows his relationship with Secretariat a little bit other than just, you know, horse and jockey. There was a love and a respect yes. for each other. Yeah. But you're right. Up until that point Every other scene in this movie, he's either covered in mud or even when we first meet him, when he sits down uh, for the interview with Penny, he's all busted up. Right. From a previous race. Um, You know, I think a lot of this for me has a very personal connection. I I told my story earlier and and how um, important all of this was to me growing up, still is to this day. you know, I'll never forget what it was like. I never thought I was going to see a Triple Crown winner. And when American Pharaoh, who is of that um, Secretariat lineage, um, when he won, I, I just remember being excited but almost being exhausted by the whole thing because I thought that the closest I was ever going to come to seeing a Triple Crown winner was this movie. <laughs> Other than the fact that there was Seattle Slough that won and I think affirmed they both won after, but they didn't dominate the way that this horse did. Um, I'm glad that they told the story. I'm glad that Disney told the story. If you want to watch a really good horse racing movie, Sea Biscuit is better than this one, uh, even though Crying Toby is in it. Um, <laughs> I have to say, though, I am glad that Disney told the story, too, not just like you said before, because, you know, they're great with Tales of the Underdog, but also because, you know, there's a lot of controversy now that Disney is obviously a family company. We don't need to tell you that, but they do own ESPN and ESPN does a lot of fantasy sports. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about you know, is that a good direction for the company to be heading in? Because, you know, it's gambling and they don't want to be associated with that. And online wagering is becoming such a big thing. Right. And I mean, granted, they were able to tell the story. There was not a one mention of betting the horses or gambling or anything of that nature. The most they would talk about was the the sales. I think there was one line of, you cost me 10 grand. And that was about as far as it went yeah somebody joked can i borrow can i borrow a grand 
yeah. to bet on him. But otherwise, yeah, it wasn't. It's not like you were watching Ocean's Eleven. You're not watching Let It Ride. Right. But I'm just I'm glad that they still chose to do this movie in spite of, you know, the nature of horse racing. Yeah. If you're over the age of 18 and you want to laugh, you can watch Let It Ride. But if you're looking for a family film, Seabiscuit's the way to go <laughs> if Secretariat didn't do it for you. I, I want to point out one other thing that I didn't uh, it, it I didn't get a chance to mention it before. In regards to the drama and what makes the story so special, we talked about Miracle, right, with the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, and you can rattle off Invincible and the Mighty Ducks. What makes I don't really this... count Mighty Ducks. It, 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 well, in this here's the vein. thing: it's a it's sports not, movie. It's a but sports it, movie, but it's in it's in a different vein. It's fictional, the same way that Angels in the Outfield is fictional, but right. it's a feel good movie. I'm talking about Disney sports films in totality, okay. whether they're fake or whether they are based on a true story. What can't be lost on this is that. This was an animal. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain amount of emotion that goes into the fact that an animal did this. It's one thing to watch a professional athlete. It's one thing to watch a human being who you know is conscious of what they're doing. Right. They go in with a goal. They have one thing in mind. They strategize. They execute. This is an animal, but this animal knew what to do. He no knew what he was different, capable of. No different than watching a human being on a baseball diamond, a hockey rink, a tennis court, a golf course. It doesn't matter. That's how special this this horse was, and I'm just so happy for its warts. I'm happy that this movie got made. Yeah. News this week. Uh, hmm. I wonder what we're going to talk about. <laughs> you know, it's amazing when a film makes a billion dollars over the course of its entire theatrical run. Avengers Endgame, for those of you who um, just came out from under that rock, <laughs> made $1.2 billion in its opening weekend you know when disney makes purchases like marvel and lucas and they spend tens of billions of dollars people want yeah this is why people wonder oh how long until they make that back first off it's disney they have the money they're not sweating for it but to think about how much money they make not just in the films but also the merchandise the licensing now television and Disney Plus. But think about $1.2 billion in four days. This movie, I'm going to give my number right now. I think worldwide, over the course of its theatrical run, $2.68 billion. That's my number. You know, it's not surprising that it actually surpass that i mean obviously there were a lot of advanced sales people bought their tickets way ahead of time uh but the amount of people that i know personally who saw it twice this weekend i mean we we said you know we did our our we went on thursday night we went to a 10 o'clock showing so it was before midnight and we did our monoreal in a minute review without spoilers um 
and we said we're going to go see it again, which we yeah. will. Yeah. But the amount of people who doubled down on the first weekend that I'm just talking about that I know it, it there were a lot of people and they they didn't just see it and they were like, oh, I want to go again. It was so good like we did. They had it lined up like I think. Was it Jimmy or was it Frank when they were so on for Frank, Infinity War? He already had the two sets of tickets. Frank already had two. Jimmy saw it twice within 14 hours. He was able to get tickets to another show. That's a lot of Avengers. It's a lot of Avengers. But most people are going to see it more than once. Yeah. And for good reason. But it, oh God, it's so worth it. First off, the movie's incredible. But secondly, there's so much going on. And... Hear it from me. Um, when they say it's a three-hour movie and nothing that's in that film needed to be cut out, in other words, nothing that's in the end product is unnecessary, they're right. Everything in that movie needs to be in that movie. No, and I'm an editor. Usually I'm the first one who watches a movie and is like, we could, we don't need this. Leave it on the cutting room floor. No, there was not a wasted piece of dialogue in that movie. Not can, a one. Can you imagine what's going to happen if they release a director's cut? It's got to be a four-hour movie. I'll watch it. I was very proud of myself. We were drinking soda, and I didn't have to get up and go to the bathroom. Yeah, I uh, I was wondering how long you'd last. And I always go. Like, any two-hour movie, I can never make it through if I'm drinking soda. Like, I wasn't even paying attention. It was just, I was just completely engrossed. The movie is completely captivating. If you haven't seen it yet, you have to go see it. It was just incredible. And for those that maybe didn't necessarily get into Avengers and are debating, should I sit down, should I binge and then go see it? The answer is a thousand and fifty percent yes. Go see this while it's in theaters. You know, I... I don't work for Disney. I don't need to champion their movies. I'm not advertising for them. But there is nothing like the theatrical experience of this movie. I was, th the whole audience was clapping. I was sitting there. I was doing like the the Nutty Professor clap. I was just, it was <laughs> yes. like really derpy. But I was just so happy. Um, so if you haven't seen all of them, I would strongly suggest catch up on what you need to catch up with and, and go see it while it's in theaters because there's nothing like it. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you very much for joining us. And Jackie, while you do not work for Disney, you do enjoy sending people to Disney. This is true. If I can't spend my own money there, I will gladly spend yours. Um, so get in touch with me at j.zolezzi at magicalvacationplanner.com or DM us on social media and uh, we'll plan your vacation. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.